my name is Jamini. I'm the North America Events Officer for Oxford Society for International Development. And this is our podcast series. I study classics at Christchurch. Um, and today we're talking to Dr. Lena Abirafe, who works extensively in the field of gender-based violence and preventing it. And I'm working with Sara, our Middle East Events Officer. So Sara, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm the Oxford Middle East Events Officer and I'm a first year historian at Christchurch. And um, I'll just pass over to Lena, who will now introduce herself. Great. Thank you both. I'm delighted to be with you. So my name is Lena Abarafi. I am currently the Executive Director of the Arab Institute for Women that's housed under the Lebanese American University, which is a an academic and activist kind of hybrid that covers the 22 Arab states and focuses on the full range of uh, women's rights and gender equality uh, in the region, in the diaspora, um, and globally. And before that, I did about two decades of work in humanitarian emergencies, working on uh, trying to end violence against women. Thank you so much. The first thing we wanted to chat to you about is just really about yourself. So. I remember from your TED talk that you kind of spoke about how your comparative women's history class really cemented your just drive to stop gender-based violence. Do you want to just tell us a bit more about yourself and how your personal background and education influenced this mission of yours? Absolutely. I mean, I tell people I was born into this work. I'm Lebanese and Palestinian, uh, raised between Saudi Arabia and the United States. So I am no stranger to conflict, uh, to hyphenated, uh, complicated identities, uh, certainly to gender issues. I think just being born a woman in the world is already an emergency in and of itself, uh, considering uh, the status of women worldwide. So uh, I think it was an inherent part of my upbringing, questioning the kinds of things that I saw, uh, trying to come to terms with my own identity and what I could and couldn't do with a young girl. Uh, but it was all solidified for me, as you said, when I was 14 in a high school class in the US called Comparative Women's History, which actually didn't talk about women's history as much as it did the history of violence against women. And for me, it was an absolute nightmare to learn that this happens everywhere, all the time, in every time and place and stage and um, socioeconomic level and every single country. And I was devastated. And that was it for me. And that's how I started. And it took me a while to get into the field. Obviously, I had to graduate from high school, college, get my master's. Um, and at some point in there, uh, the soonest I could jump on a plane and do the work that I wanted to do um, while I was there. I started in 1997 in Bangladesh. That was uh, my first field post and continued, well, haven't stopped. Yes, of course. And you talked about what a widespread issue it is. How often do you feel that gender-based violence is prioritized in emergency situations by organizations like the UN who we think should be the main ones tackling it? I wouldn't say the UN should be the main ones tackling it. I think everybody should tackle it. I don't think this is, uh, this is a very complicated, deep-rooted problem and it's everybody's responsibility to fix it. Um, how often is it taken seriously? I think it's never taken as seriously as it should be. The challenge is that this isn't just for international actors to fix. It's about local women's groups who've been doing this work all along and who are implicated in its reality, as you know. It's about governments. It's about changing policy and legislation. 
It's about reforming the security sector. It's about making sure that women who want to have access to justice. Uh, it is about a very full range of, of issues and actors and services, the health sector, counseling and mental health and psychosocial support. And if everybody isn't on board and committed and trained and prepared and working together um, and working in the best interest of the survivor and then working on prevention, uh, it is about what we hear in the media, what we teach our kids, what's, what parents say, what religious institutions say. Um, so it's a massive project. It's something that um, in our lifetimes, I don't think we'll, we'll be able to make a dent, at least not in the way that I like. But that doesn't mean that we're, we're going to stop trying. So again, no, it's not taken seriously enough, not anywhere, ever. It's really profound and sad to hear, to be honest. But I mean, people like you remind us why we have to keep going with this mission. The next question that we wanted to ask is, often when we think about gender-based violence, we think of violence against women, which is, of course, the most pervasive issue. Just out of interest, have you ever encountered violence against men in your work? Or do you think they're susceptible to this? Violence against men and boys occurs. Absolutely. It is a problem. It is inflicted on all types of populations, marginalized communities, the trans community, others. Uh, but But the thing is, the vast majority are women and girls. Those are the vast majority of victims or survivors, and the vast majority of perpetrators are men and also boys. So for me personally, while I encourage anybody who needs help to come and seek it, and in my work, we never turn anybody away. We always find a place to, to support somebody in the kind of support they need or whatever services. But my work has been predominantly focused on women and girls, given the severity of the problem and how we have not yet made a dent in terms of finding a solution and in terms of prevention. No, that makes a lot of sense. I thought we'd now just move on to some North America-specific questions, just because that's my specific region. And then Sarah really wanted to talk about the Middle East after that. So I was really interested in um, your work in um, Haiti after the earthquake to help women facing violence. Of course, you've obviously gone to so many humanitarian disasters. I mean, what were the specific challenges you faced out there? Well, the challenge is that uh, with the earthquake was catastrophic. Um, And it really set back the country, uh, perpetuated uh, violence against women, amongst other things. We're talking about massive loss of life and infrastructure and livelihoods and, you know, a whole slew of other tragedies. So when this is all tangled together, it presents a very complicated picture. Um, And women and girls, what's important to know is that in Haiti and everywhere that I've worked, women and girls tend to be the more vulnerable uh, members of the community, even before the tragedy, before the war, before the earthquake, before whatever it is. But any kind of emergency, any humanitarian uh, context that is overlaid on that tends to amplify those pre-existing vulnerabilities, meaning their lives are made much worse. Their lives are not great before, and they become much more difficult in terms of access to resources, support, services, any kind of structures that can help them, any economic opportunity, um, access to, to markets, their own physical safety certainly is put at risk. And when we're talking about an earthquake, like what happened in Haiti in massive uh, displaced populations, uh, women and girls are forced to live in in tents or or, or makeshift shelters or next to men and boys they don't know, which obviously creates certain conditions that that cause these problems. There is a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress created by the incident. And unfortunately, we see this everywhere, right? Not just Haiti. Uh, The idea that the worst externality of these types of crises is that we take it out on those that are 
closest to us and most vulnerable, and that's women and girls. I mean, we saw that in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. We've seen that in just about every tragedy, the idea that we hurt those who are closest to us. So things like increased sexual violence in the immediate aftermath of any kind of emergency, but also longer term, different forms of violence, like intimate partner violence that continues to increase even years and, and decades after the crisis. So in these kinds of situations, you know, there's the emergency and we like to kind of, we like to think it's a fixed and one-off thing and it never is because the emergency, after the so-called emergency ends, emergencies for women are just beginning. They're taking on new forms and women and girls are continuing to suffer. So what is needed in places like Haiti and everywhere else is long-term continuous support. And that makes it very challenging. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the resources. The systems aren't set up that way. Um, so, you know, I wonder how we ever expect to succeed if we're not providing the right support from the beginning. Yeah, that's all very true. And so in your job, for example, going after the earthquake, I mean, it sounds like there were just so many things that these women needed to be protected against sexual violence, you know, from mental health to actually like, a safe haven for men and boys not to be able to go in and violate them. What would you specifically do to help women get back on their feet and feel safe again? What would your work entail in a situation like the one you're in in Haiti? Well, for Haiti specifically, I was the coordinator for all things GBB for the response. So what I did is work at the level of the systems and services to make sure, like I said, that the actors that we need, like police and, and the justice sector and the health sector and counselors and case managers and the NGOs that were there and UN agencies that were there and the whole slew of other actors were all committed and working together and they understood what is needed to prevent uh, cases of sexual violence, to mitigate risk, and to help women and girls uh, get back on their feet. So to help survivors you know, if they didn't experience sexual violence, but also to help women and girls in general. So creating um, econo economic opportunity, making sure that shelters were safe, making sure that latrines were um, separated for men and women, that, that they were lit and lockable and that the path to access them was clear, that food distribution was done in a way that didn't uh, inadvertently harm women, that cases of sexual exploitation were addressed uh, and you know, avoided where possible, even though that happens just about everywhere. So you know, those are the kinds of things I did. So I was a, an advocate, a voice for women and girls. And also looking at the damage that was done, not just physically, but also in terms of the trauma, you know, emotional damage to the women's movement in Haiti, to the major loss of uh, of some key leadership in the women's ministry and with women's NGOs, you know, this too is a massive setback because these are the women who are on the ground, who've been there forever, who'll be there forever. Those are the real leaders, you know, not us. And so our job, at least my job, as I saw it, is to support them and to see what they need, how to make sure that they have what it takes, the tools and the resources and, and whatever else to keep going, to rebuild the movement and to sustain and ultimately to scale it. But, you know, at the level of women and girls you know, as individuals, and I, I spoke to obviously to many, many in my time in, in Haiti, I didn't have as much, <laughs> I didn't have the power and the resources to be able to deliver everything to them in the way that I wanted. But what I would ask is when I spoke to them, I would ask women, do you feel safe? And most of the time you can imagine the answer was no. 
And so my follow-up question was always this, was what will it take to make you feel safe? And very often they'd have a clear answer and I would at least take that back and try with to my colleagues, to other actors, to other agencies, to organizations that could do something and try and get those needs met. Because if those are the direct demands, the voices of these women and girls telling us what they need, we have a duty to meet those needs. So that's what I tried to do as much as I possibly could. Sounds like you do amazing work. So um, I'm, I'm really inspired, to be honest. Um, I know you worked in Papua New Guinea too. I mean, I guess this is kind of related to Haiti as well. And I'm asking about both countries. I mean, you talk about kind of the emergency response, but what do you, or how do you think people can help with sorting out the culture? So if there's a culture of men being able to abuse their wives or boys being able to abuse girls or women being treated as objects that's embedded even into people who are meant to be police officers protecting women or lawmakers protecting women. Well, you know, culture is not a static thing, right? Culture evolves and changes and it's interpreted in different ways all the time. So, and there, are, there isn't a uniform definition of what is culture, right? So a lot of people will say, oh, it's just a culture that there is violence or there is, you know, a, a patriarchal context and women are abused or, you know, some factor. But there is also a culture of uh, women and girls and even men and boys who are resisting this, who are looking for change, who respect human rights, who believe in consent, who want everybody to live with equality and dignity and respect. So it's about firstly finding that, uh, you know, that undercurrent, if you will, of culture and helping to bolster that. But it's also about looking at uh, the institutions, you know, and this is everywhere. This is not just Papua New Guinea. The institutions that disseminate messages that influence us. It is about schools and the media and sports and TV and everything else that we absorb and religious institutions uh, that teach us what we can and can't do and what we can and can't be and, and who owns our bodies, right? So these are the kinds of questions that we need to constantly be asking. I mean, even in the U.S., as I sit here, you know, we have conversations all the time about uh, teaching uh, young girls, I mean, very young girls and boys about consent, about uh, ownership of their own bodies, about saying no, about you know, asserting themselves, about defining their, their space, um, and these are challenges, you know, we're talking about a social rewiring, basically a global one, because again, no country is immune to this. Uh, so those are great challenges. But at the same time, the most successful changes are the ones that are driven from the inside, you know, so it's not going to be about me marching into Papua New Guinea or anywhere else saying, you know, you all have to stop this. It's really about finding the people who have always been, who already are and have always been, the voices for change in their communities. And they're the ones that are going to have the strongest impact. So what can we do to help them? Yeah, that sounds like a very sensitive and measured approach to such a complex problem. I'm going to hand on to Sarah now to ask Middle East questions. So you talked about the situation in North America, and I believe that, like you said, it's an issue that is prevalent throughout the world. However, do you believe that the attitude held towards women in certain Middle Eastern countries, such as Saudi Arabia, encourages a greater proportion of gender-based violence? Yeah, I think that the challenge in, uh, in a lot of Middle Eastern countries is that the context is one of institutionalized patriarchy. 
that has led to uh, sexist attitudes and also leads to outright misogyny. Um, while, you know, if you look at the Arab region, right, in terms of social indicators, yes, the region is doing very poorly. Uh, you can see it's we've got the widest gender gap. I think it's about 150 years until the gender gap closes for the Arab region, while globally it's about 100 years. So by way of comparison, you can definitely say that the Arab region is, is not doing well for women. And there is a lot uh, of reform that is needed, everything from discriminatory laws and attitudes and practices to access to economic opportunities, to women's presence in leadership and public and political space, uh, to women's treatment at home, to, you know, name it, right? I mean, where do you, where do you even, where does it stop and where do you start? Um, so yes, countries like that certainly are no friend of women. And it makes the work very difficult because it's often hard to access them. But at the same time, like I've said, if you look at the promising leaders, the feminists and the activists who are out there fighting for those very basic rights, even in countries like Saudi Arabia, it is going to be very slow and very difficult. There's a lot of pushback. Uh, there is a massive backlash in the region uh, and also globally against women's rights and fundamental freedoms. And then that's just the way that social change seems to work. It's very frustrating. I'm, I'm not at all happy about our lack of progress, nor am I feeling like I want to be patient for these 150 years while we try and close the gender gap. But, uh, you know, at least we know that there are women and in particular young women who are from these countries who are leading the charge for change. And that's what that's what I want to see. At least there is that. I totally agree. And that is a very scary number, 150 years. And like you said, there's a lot of fundamental changes that we have to work on first, uh, particularly in the Middle East. So do you perhaps believe that incorporating issues of gender-based violence in the school curriculum, for example, can make a difference um, in countries like Afghanistan, for example, where it is often overlooked? Well, again, you know, it's... Uh... I really want to emphasize that this is this is everybody's problem and it's everywhere. So every school system from the very beginning needs to incorporate messages about consent, about bodily integrity and autonomy, about equality, respect, dignity, you know, all of the things that, that to which humans are entitled. We shouldn't have to fight for these things. These should be a given. Uh, we should talk about diversity. We should talk about inclusion. We should talk about uh, community. We should, we, there are so many, all this is, is intersecting in ways that create a very complicated landscape. And we have to unravel all of that from, from day one. Um, I mean, to give a personal example, I have a niece who is six. And from the very beginning, we have been working with her to say no, uh, you know, this is my body. Uh, no, you can't touch me. Uh, every single person who meets her has to ask her permission to hug her or shake her hand or whatever. And in doing that, you know, this is quite, um, it, it's a lot, it's difficult to do. But the idea is this, that she owns her own body and she gets to decide who is close to her and who is not. So as her aunt, I will even ask, can I give you a hug? And if she says no, it's no. Maybe we can shake hands. If she says no, it's still no. So how to teach kids to, to own their own bodies and to define their own boundaries and then to, to treat each other the same way. You know, it's not just about the adult and the child, you know, forcing a hug or kiss or whatever, but it's also about how children interact. I mean, these are hugely difficult issues, but the earlier you start and the better everybody is about staying on message, parents and educational institutions and 
you know, even the cartoons they watch or whatever the messages they absorb, then we have a better chance of making some meaningful change. But it's a long-term project. Definitely, I agree. It is a group effort after all. There is only so much each of us can do individually. And I suppose it's going to matter when everyone comes together and tackles it. You also discussed uh, certain activists and individuals in the Middle East who are working to improve these things. At the minute, I know there are certain individuals in Iran, for example, who are being detained for protesting against um, the country's discriminatory forced veiling laws. What do you believe that the world can do to support activists like this in the battle for women empowerment? I think we need to amplify their voices. We need to make sure that we are informed of their issues and aware of them and use what, you know, we've got social media at our disposal. It's a very powerful, but also very scary thing. And we can, when we hear about these, first of all, we, it's our responsibility to actually hear and to know about these things and to be informed. You know, no one has any excuse anymore. We cannot live in ignorance and say that we didn't know. So, you know, in, the information is hugely valuable. And then amplifying the cause, you know, following those people who are speaking out from inside the country or those who are um, speaking out on behalf of the country and doing so in a way that represents the priorities of women and girls in the country, um, supporting their causes, amplifying. They will tell you what to do. You know, we don't need to guess. Uh, and I, I think, you know, this is a very simple answer, but it's one that we tend to not um, we tend not to apply. If you don't know what to do, ask. Ask the people who are implicated in the reality, how can I help you? What can I do? And people will answer you. You know, And maybe it is just as simple as you know, use your platform to disseminate this message and to reach uh, you know, these organizations or help us to, uh, to crowdfund for whatever, right? There are lots of things that we can do and they are concrete and it's more than just hashtags. Because hashtags aren't necessarily going to lead to concrete change. But you know, if you don't know what to do, you just reach out to those people and ask. And, we, and I get those questions often, you know, what can I do to help the Institute? People ask me and I say, all right, you know, how much time do you have? Let me give you a list. Yeah, I definitely agree. I feel like sometimes the simplest solution is the best and we tend to overlook it. And we just need reminding of ever so often to just do the best we can in our own position, I suppose. I'm also going to ask you a follow-up question to this, just because I mentioned the discriminatory forced veiling laws in Iran. Uh, recently, France uh, had a potential hijab ban that was proposed in Parliament. Do you believe that this poses a similar threat to women's autonomy over their own bodies? I think you cannot dictate what women wear. You know, we have to retain the freedom to be able to decide what we're wearing um, and what that means to us. You know, I, and I think it's very difficult because the hijab is, uh, you know, targets Islam in particular, while other religions also cover their hair or dress modestly or, you know, have certain, um, have certain dress codes that they abide by. You know, you cannot enforce those things on people. People have to be free to practice it's very different if it's forced. It's very different if it is, um, you know, in a country that, you know, where it is mandatory. But if there is freedom of choice, if you're in a country where you are allowed to wear what you want, you know, a, a bikini or a burkini should be your choice and you should be free to make that decision. Thank you so much for talking about both the North America and the Middle East separately. I think we just had some general questions, to be honest, that we just wanted to ask about. So, for me, I mean, I know it's sad that sexual-based violence isn't being addressed and that we shouldn't have to tell the world this again and again, and it must be tiring for you. I was just wondering whether you could share 
of course, like sensitively, some specific stories of women who you've worked with or, or that have really resonated with you um, that might kind of show people who haven't gone into the field and experienced such things as close up as you have, why they need to prioritise this and why even if we're not directly affected by this, it is an issue that affects everyone we are directly affected. Actually, I'm going to speak to that comment because the perception is that we're not directly affected and that's not true. The reality is that one in three women and girls worldwide will experience some form of violence in their lifetime. And people who think we are not affected are not paying attention. The truth is if you ask any woman anywhere in any country, in any time period of any religion or socioeconomic level or race or class, whatever, there she will have a story or she will know someone who has a story. I mean, if you have survived as long as you have without having been sexually harassed, you know, groped or catcalled or, or touched or uh, had an uncomfortable comment in the office or in the classroom, then you are very lucky. And that is, uh, that is rare because we exist as women and as girls with the constant fear of this kind of violence. You've been told possibly, at least I've been told, be careful about being out late. Don't go home alone. Call me when you get in, go to the bathroom in pairs, hold your keys between your fingers so you can impale somebody in the eyeball in case they get too close. We live with that fear. So the reality is this affects everybody all the time. I mean, have you ever been walking on the street at night by yourself and deliberately crossed the street to avoid a pack of guys or, you know, we all do this. So even the fear of this violence is a form of violence. So my argument is, you know, if people don't know that, if people aren't aware of that, I mean, look at the Me Too movement. Did that not expose to all of us that everybody is affected? I mean, if, if people don't know that they are asleep. I would be extremely shocked. So, you know, the first step is understand that it's everybody's problem. And the second step is to understand that the solution is going to require everybody. Because if you're not out there thinking differently or correcting people or doing something, it's not easy all the time to be the person, you know, if you're, if you're a bystander, if you're implicated, it's tough. If you're a bystander and you hear, I don't know, locker room talk or boys will be boys kind of rubbish, or you see somebody making another person uncomfortable, you know, how can you act? How can you intervene? How can you stop it? How, you, how can you distract them? How can you support the person who is put in that position? We all have a role to play. You see it everywhere in every space and everything we do all the time. So if people aren't out there learning about it, uh, taking matters into their own hands and believing that they have to be part of the solution, you know, I think that's incredibly naive. What we are guilty of very often is othering this violence. Oh, well, that's too bad, but it happens to other women over there. Not here, not us, not now. No, it's just, it's, it's about other, other places, other people. And most of the time, people assume that's attached to conflict or poverty or, or religion or a particular region or a particular race or a particular something. No, that's not true at all. It's all of us and it's all the time. And I think you just have to sit there with two or three of your female friends and you'll find out how shocking and how pervasive it is. And I find that to be very upsetting. So men also need to kind of get on board with this because I truly believe that, that not all men and boys are perpetrators, obviously. So if you feel that this is wrong, you also have a duty to stand up, to do something, to, 
to correct people when they say something, to support women in the workplace, to have their voices heard rather than speaking over them all the time, to uh, raise your sons or, or, or whatever in ways that, um, uh, that demonstrate respect uh, and understand boundaries. You know, so everybody's got a role to play. We don't live in a, a bubble. We don't live in a vacuum. So that would be my rant to make sure that people understand that this is not just countries like Afghanistan. And people ask me that a lot. And I push back very strongly uh, because, uh, you know, it's the influence of the media that kind of uh, re-victimizes these women in these places to say, oh my goodness, it's so terrible. It's only Afghanistan that, or whatever, country X, that inflicts these kinds of abuses on women. And that is not true. Of course, I mean, I've had these exact experiences that you've talked about as a university student in the UK, which is, you know, um, telling. Right. I mean, and look at what's happening in the UK as well. I mean, you all have movements out on the street and people are angry and women can't be, be safe walking home alone at night. I mean, the fact that you cannot be safe in your classroom, in your, on your street, in your neighborhood, you know, going from one place to another, to me, is a crime. I mean, our lives and our freedom and our mobility and our opportunities are constantly restricted just because we were born into female bodies. I mean, I salute all of that. It's all so true and very frustrating for someone like me. I mean, I just wanted to ask your opinion on, I I mean, you've touched on it quite a lot, actually, but just on recently, um, the outflurry in the news not only of Sarah Everard but for university students who might be tuning into this podcast specifically there was a lot of investigative journalism done recently into rape culture at um, a lot of schools specifically private schools in the UK and often top universities Oxford included on that list I mean Exeter as well Um, I mean those are just two names that I've plucked but it's clearly a pervasive problem are you encouraged by the fact that at least the media is reporting more on these things now absolutely absolutely I mean in even in my lifetime in my in my working lifetime uh, it's incredible to see that you know we can't go a single day without some uh, articles, some comments, some campaigns, some movement, some action. And I think that's fantastic. Uh, I think, you know, that's really the first step. Now we need to, you know, we need to translate that into some action, but that's coming. Like we're changing. You know, I believe that there, I have to believe that there's hope because I literally get up every day for this. And if I didn't think we could get anywhere, it would be very difficult for me to continue. But, um, you know, we are going to move in the right direction. We're looking at all of these things through a very different lens in terms of, you know, human dignity and, and respect and all of that stuff that, that for us is indispensable. And, you know, it's a shame that we didn't have it from the very beginning of, of humankind. But anyway, it's not too late. You know, we're not yet extinct. Like we can fix this mess. Um, but yeah, absolutely. The media has got a huge role to play because it really keeps things on the agenda keeps the pressure on also informs us so you know as long as the media is representing these issues in a way that is right because it wasn't all that long ago that the media would say you know well uh woman x who was walking home alone and wearing a mini skirt and also having had two glasses of wine and known for somewhat promiscuous you know it really depends like so it's not media you know media is media it really has to to represent these issues in a way that is that is correct and, and safe and ethical and uh, and doesn't re-victimize the woman. But I think that's happening. So, yes, promising stuff. I'd like it to go a little faster. Like I said, you know, the 100 years to close the gender gap is not something that I thought I'd be around to see. 
So, you know, I would appreciate if we all could kind of fast track social change as much as is possible. Of course. And I mean, what are your thoughts sometimes when you're reading kind of feminist theory um, about these things? um, I've read some stuff about how a great outlet for women is kind of outside the institution. So, for example, I mean, you were talking about Me Too just now. It was a bunch of women outside, I mean, marginalised from the big film industry speaking up and many big industries. And it wasn't necessarily people working from within. It was from the outside. I mean, do you think both are necessary to institute change? Do you think one is more powerful than the other? Oh, I think it's all of the above. You know, I think there isn't one magic bullet answer, right? We, it is about you know, women raising their voices if they're comfortable to do so. I mean, an interesting thing about the Me Too movement is, you know, it, it caught on like wildfire in, uh, in countries like this one. Um, and that's because there is um, uh, the, be- the benefits of it outweighed the costs, right? If you're going to stand up, if I'm going to stand up and say, Lena, Me Too, um, I want to be sure that I am not risking my myself, my life, my family, uh, my job, whatever, in doing so, you know, it's it can be a little bit scary to do that. And there isn't just one movement and one way to do this. You know, I think we've been me tooing to each other in whispers uh, um, and hushed tones since the beginning of time. But uh, the idea of social media makes it, first of all, spread much more quickly uh, and resonate with a lot more people, and also make people feel like they're not alone. So, you know, that was one power of that movement but you know it is it's it's women who are implicated in it obviously it's also people from the inside who are going to make the change in the institutions that have that have historically held us back but now should be holding us high so i think it's it's again a global effort at just about every level um thank you so uh, i just wanted to ask some final questions just so that people can go and educate themselves. Um, would you like to just briefly talk to us? I know you wrote a book about um, gender-based violence in Afghanistan, I believe. Um, just Would you like to just tell people sp- like what that's about, um, why you wrote it, why it's important to read it? Sure. Well, I moved to Afghanistan in 2002. I lived there until 2006. And the reason I had, I wanted to move to Afghanistan for years before that. And the reason is that I ended up um, in the mid 90s working. I was working on uh, women's human rights when uh, the Taliban took over Kabul and everything going on with women was suddenly uh, suddenly caught media attention. And it's basically all we were talking about. So in the context of that job that I was doing, I was told, you know, hey, could you just focus on Afghanistan for a little bit and let's see what's going on with women there? Well, they caught my attention in the mid 90s and I never really let it go. And then finally, in 2002, I was able to go. And the reason that 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 story for me was so compelling and so interesting um, was because, first of all, I mean, the history of Afghanistan, you know, hasn't always been like this. Right. Um, Afghanistan had its its moment, at least Kabul, as um, you know, very open place. There's pictures of women in in uh, in university classrooms and wearing skirts and whatever else. And so the idea of women's rights or lack thereof has always been a very political project that's changed uh, based on whatever is happening in the country at the time. And you can't separate that from the fact that there's been layers of conflict and different invasions and the and the Soviet invasion and the U.S. occupation, and all those kinds of things in Afghanistan that they've been subjected to that also play a big role. So when I moved in 2002, it was shortly after um, the U.S. invasion and the rhetoric around women's liberation and then all of these NGOs and 
UN agencies coming in saying, okay, don't worry, we're going to rescue you and whatever, which, you know, with its good intent inadvertently sidelined a lot of Afghan women, Afghan movements, feminist movements that were already at play in the country. So, you know, how do you, when you're coming in from the outside, make sure that you uh, pay attention to the movements that are already underway on the inside and not undermine them and understand that your job is to take a back seat and really let them drive the agenda. But if you're committed to helping, help them in the way that they want, not in the way that you want. And that's, um, you know, it's a healthy dose of humility that we don't often have. And so I was running this international NGO in um uh, when I moved to Afghanistan, and I was learning all of these things from uh, the voices of Afghan women themselves. Um, and I thought that was absolutely uh, fascinating, also disturbing. And I felt like I had a duty to kind of start talking about it, talking about how, you know, what Afghan feminism has looked like, what we could have done, what we were in fact doing, and how we weren't necessarily helping. Um, and sure enough, here we are now with the U.S. about to withdraw from Afghanistan. And have we kept our promise, you know, as far as uh, the U.S. is concerned to Afghan women? And it really begs the question. So that's how I started to um, investigate that. I started to do that in the form of doctoral research uh, through the London School of Economics, but while I was still living in Kabul. And uh, it culminated in the publication of uh, my book in 2009. So that was after about a year after I got the degree. And yeah, Afghanistan for me, I mean, I, I wasn't ever able to go back after I left in 2006, but I never forgot it. And you know, it's one of those places that remains very dear to my heart because because of the extraordinary women and, and even men that I met there um, who are doing this great work. And I remember, you know, one thing that really compelled me that I think probably drove me to pursue this research and ultimately to write the book is uh, I was having conversations with Afghan women, with Afghan men about what they thought of all of these kind of projects underway to, to quote unquote, liberate Afghan women. And so this young Afghan man said to me, the world thought they could bring liberation and freedom to Afghan women, but freedom is only one from the inside. And I thought that was very powerful because what he was saying was that there are these movements already for freedom, for liberation, uh, for Afghan women that were already underway. And we needed to see those and support those. Um, and you know, I don't think that we did as good a job as we could have in that sense for Afghan women. That's really interesting. And I mean, I, so sadly, I think most people don't have as culturally nuanced a view as you do. Um, so it's just really good to learn about this, I think, and to spread this message that you are. Of course, you wrote your book. I was just wondering whether you had, I mean, I personally find a great sense of solidarity in female violence by reading pieces of literature, either fiction or nonfiction. Do you have um, any books that you specifically love or would recommend to girls all over the world to be honest to face this same problem oh my gosh there's so many I mean what I tell you what I love and I can you know I don't know if I can give you a list because it could go on forever and I risk forgetting some but I, what I love that's happening right now is uh feminist literature for very young readers I think that's awesome. You know, as an adult, if you want to find this kind of stuff, you can find it. It's all over the place. I think it's great. It's so important that we are showcasing women's voices and experiences and the diversity of voices. And I love it. Now, if you are like five years old, at least when I was five years old, uh, we didn't have it, you know, I, and I'm, I mean, I'm not 100 years old, but still, you know, things have changed in such a way that now even the books that parents read to the very young children, like, um, 
uh, oh gosh, I think it's called uh, bed, bed, Bedtime Stories for Rebel Girls and all of that stuff, you know, the things that my niece reads, I think are awesome because it just, it talks about extraordinary women around and girls around the world who are doing amazing things. And it just teaches these, these young girls that they can do anything and anything is possible. And they, they grow up uh, with a strong sense of identity and conviction and that's the stuff that I find inspiring. Like if I could just read kids literature all day and be extremely enthusiastic about that, that is what I would do. That's great. Yeah. I've read, I've read a couple of books about rejected princesses for young girls and things who've been censored out of history and things who are, um, it's kind of on similar lines to this children's feminist literature. So yeah, I think that's it from me. Sarah, are you good? I think that was it from me as well. I just wanted to say thank you for responding to our questions on my side on the Middle East questions because I feel like it's such an obvious but yet overlooked topic that has recently come to light and it's good to have a discussion like this about it. Absolutely, anytime. I mean, I'm, I'm delighted. Please let me know you know, when, where this goes and, and what else we can do. And, you know, just to say that if people are interested in being involved, uh, there are ways to be involved. You know, people, I encourage people to write to me and say, listen, I'm here and I'm ready and tell me what to do. Because that's, that's how we're going to get it done. If everybody sees that they have a responsibility, a duty to do something, um, you know, finding the what of what to do, it should be easy. So um, I would strongly encourage people to, to take some action, you know, not just be passive about these kinds of things, because none of us can afford to be passive unless we're willing to wait 100 years to see some real change. And I, for one, am not. Thank you so much. It's been lovely chatting to you. And I'm I'm sure everyone who is going to listen to this will be really encouraged by this idea of just writing. You might be bombarded now, but just writing to you to ask what exactly they can do. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm accessible on social media, just like, you know, many, many others, you know, people are, are welcome to poke me um, with their ideas and enthusiasm and, and their comments and, and questions. Thank you, Lena. Um, yeah, it's just been lovely chatting to you. And I mean, good luck with your mission and you're really um, a kind of beacon of hope, considering how much that you've done, despite the fact it's so far. I mean, I think people like you just remind everyone why it's so important to keep acting keep the conversation going despite these disheartening statistics and stories that we hear absolutely i think we're all in this together